This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to Sounds Curious, the podcast for the adventurous listener. And today we have an amazing show for you. We have a conversation with the composer, performer, flutist, Jane Riggler. Our conversation today ranges um, all over the place. Um from the courage that you need sometimes to follow your inner voice to new advances in music, technology and practice and everything in between. So we're really excited about today's show and we're gonna get right to it. But we want to draw your attention to a few places where you can share some meaningful space time with deep listeners and improvisers coming up this summer. The first one that we want to draw your attention to, if you're anywhere near Troy, New York and uh, Rensselaer, um, particularly the um, MPAC space uh, on the Rensselaer campus, there is going to be an open day of deep listening workshops led by some of the founders of the practice and deep listening certificate holders, including Jane Riggler, today's guest. So if you're anywhere near Troy, New York at 10 a.m. on May 6th and you want to spend some time with the absolute core of a contemporary movement, you should head over to Rensselaer and go to the MPAC space and go to the deep listening workshops and day of sonic meditations there. More information about that day of deep listening events and open workshops can be found at www.deeplistening.rpi.edu. That's www.deeplistening.rpi.edu. And you can find links to it over the show notes for the Sounds Curious podcast, either on iTunes or at www.bansheemedia.com. We'll be sharing links to all of Jane Riggler's work and her upcoming projects, as well as other projects that we are excited about here at the show, including Kristen Nordeval's upcoming premiere of her opera, The Trials of Patricia Isasa, which premieres in Montreal at the Monument National Theatre Uh, May 19th through the 21st in 2016. So we'll point you at some of these great opportunities coming up in the future to spend time listening to improvisers, composer, performers, musicians, and sound artists of note. 
and all of that can be found at the show notes. In the meantime, without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Jane Riggler and to some of her music and her extraordinary career already um, as a composer performer out there in the world. So without further ado, Jane Riggler. Thinking about this interview, and obviously I've been thinking about it for a long time because we had to postpone it a bunch. Um, I realized something. I do not know the Jane Riggler origin story. Like, I know a lot, but I don't go back past the 90s. So I want to know the Jane Riggler origin story. <laughs> like, what's the journey been like so far? I mean, you are an incredible composer performer which is something that wasn't even a thing when I started school. So. Right. It wasn't for me either. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. So how, you know, tell me about the journey so far. There's a lot I don't know. Well, I don't know how far back you want me to go. (laughs) I don't know. How far uh... back you get to determine your own origin story, my dear. Well, we'll just start. We'll start at Northwestern. um, And then we can go back farther if it's, if it, turns into an important part of the conversation. But I, I went to Northwestern for my undergraduate because I, I really um, was very interested in becoming a, a flutist and make that my career. I, I, want, I didn't think that I was, despite my having won a lot of competitions when I was in high school and, and a national competition, the, the MTNA, you know, woodwind competition and whatever. And despite I had soloed with orchestras and stuff, I never had the confidence to feel that I could just go on my own and be this like, always wanted to have a backup plan. And I think I'm still to this day, always thinking about backup plans. Um, <clears throat> so I went and I got to Northwestern. I was totally shocked that I got into Northwestern. Um, it's a, an incredible uh, music school uh, department. And, and, um, you know, I, I worked really hard, but somewhere along the lines, um, I was, you know, working so hard to be the perfect orchestral flute player. You have this perfectly pure, beautiful sound. And I love telling this story. I tell it often. People have probably heard me tell it before. I was literally, I was like making my bed and listening to Chicago radio, which is so good and has such great jazz stations. And I had never had that experience living in Los Angeles growing up in Los Angeles. I never really listened to that much to the radio. And whenever I did, it was, I never really thought there was anything more than just, you know, pop or something or news. Right. So I, I was listening to this radio station that I loved and, and it would just play all the really cool music I'd never heard before. And suddenly I hear a flute player and it's like really bad flute player. Like it's like a really bad tone for, for me at the time to find a bad flute player. I was like, why would they have this person who can't really blow into the flute and have a nice tone play on the radio. Like, why is this person on the radio? And I'm listening and all of a sudden I'm listening to the music and I'm like, this is the most beautiful, beautiful music I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is, this is, this can't be, wait, what is this? And I just, I got a pen and paper and I'm standing by the radio so that when it, when it, when they put the announcement on of who it was, I would write it down <clears throat> And this is Eric Dolphy from other aspects. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So I like run. I like literally get my bag and I'm like running to the local radio uh, record store. And there's a whole section on Eric Dolphy. I'm like, who the heck is Eric Dolphy? Right. So I like buy like three albums, you know, other aspects, like a couple of other ones. And I take it home and I'm listening. I'm like, this guy is like so amazing. Like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? Is everything a lie? Like what, what, what am I, what, what is music, you know? And why wait, you know, it's just like, I had this kind of epiphany also kind of crisis, which was the first of many, many crises yet to come in my life. Well, that's a paradigm Um, shift. I mean, right there. It was, it was. And it really got me thinking about world music. It got me thinking about energy and, and what music and what we're doing as musicians, what we're really, really doing, what does it all mean? You know? And I just, after that, I think that was my junior, my either sophomore or junior year, I had a total existential crisis at Northwestern and I got through it pretty well, but it was really like, it, it kind of epiphanied out into this major spiral when I didn't get accepted into any of the master's 
uh, of music schools that I wanted, that I thought I wanted to go to. And they were like Eastman and like Indiana. And I was like, I was applying to these places. I was like struggling, you know, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to do that? So I didn't get in and I had a year off and I had this major depression, but I saw John Fonville performing. Um, uh, he's a flute flutist. He's the flutist at, at UC San Diego Oh yeah. at the flute convention and at the flute convention, which was in San Diego, the year that I graduated from Northwestern, the summer that I graduated, I went to the flute convention and of course I was playing contemporary music. I was already, I was already playing contemporary music. My, my entire, um, I was playing in the 20th century, uh, cha- uh, chamber ensemble at Northwestern. All my music that I did on my recitals were all 20th century music, including, from my peers, like Steven Taylor at the time was there. He's now a really great composer. I was playing their music. I was playing my, you know, all contemporary music. So I go to the, I'm playing um, Le Mille Noir from uh, uh, Messiaen, and I, I got a, into this master class at the flute convention. And I saw at the flute convention all of these flutists who were flutist composers, who were performer composers Anne LeBears, John Fonville, Josh Vonnenberg, Isvan Matus, uh, Robert Dick. Um, I just freaked out. I was like, wait, there's an option. Right. This is, this is (laughs) a possible career path. (laughs) This is a possible thing. Like you can actually be a composer and a flutist. And I just, it blew my mind. And they were all playing this music that was like, he played music for Sarah, which is, you know, this piece that's got all this inspiration from music from around the world, Tibetan music and Japanese, shakuhachi and, you know, African music and just like all this stuff. Right. And I just, I came up to him and I was like, I know you must be completely overwhelmed with hundreds of flutists coming up to you at this convention, telling you how amazing you are and how they want to study with you. I was just wondering if you had room for one more student. And he looked at me and laughed and was, and said, well, first of all, you're the first person to come up to me and you're probably the <laughs> last person to come up to me. So thank you very much. And yes, I have plenty of room in my studio. Come study with me. Oh my so- God. I, I, I moved to San Diego on a whim, just completely spontaneously. And I got a job at Scripps Institution of Oceanography while I studied with John Fonville privately. And then he invited me to play with Sonar, which was unprecedented because you can't play in Sonar unless you're a grad student. Unless you're a graduate student. Yes. I wasn't, I wasn't yet a graduate student. So I applied officially and he justified it by saying, you know, Jade's probably going to come in the fall. So let her play, you know, so I started playing and, and, you know, just being in San Diego and, and studying with him, and it was amazing. And then, of course, all my peers in San Diego. You see, San Diego really whipped me up into shape. And <laughs> it was it was quite the um, it was quite the scene in the nineties. Yeah, it really was. It really it really was um, a big eye opener for me that I could improvise, that I could compose that I could, and I still didn't consider myself a composer until many years later. Actually, Haya Chernovin was the, was the person who said to me, you know, you're, you really are a composer, Jane. <laughs> and I was, coming from her, I was like, what? No. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, um, it, it just took a lot of, it was my peers that, that kind of motivated me to work with um, and become very serious about 20th century literature and, and what that means and how to perform it and, and what that means in, in terms of world music and the ritual of playing 20th century music and, you know, playing global car or Fernie Ho. I mean, what does it mean physically? What does it mean to reach absolute limits mentally, intellectually, physically, emotionally? Um, what do I have to do? And so I, I really started to, and because I was always kind of an athletic um, performer, Doing pieces that required me to be go physically beyond what I thought I was capable of was pretty um, was was kind of in the, in the way that I was already thinking. Because when I was in high school and I was doing these competitions, I was very serious about it, and I would like ride the exercise bicycle, playing three concertos in a row by memory three times in a row while riding the exercise bicycle, like so that it's like really really like I was really like okay do everything harder, like way harder in your practice regime. That's like and a superhero training montage. It, you know, <laughs> like I see power cores over it and just, you know. Yeah, I was, I was really physically like always ready for the unexpected. And, and, and um, so to play like global, to play all these kind of physically demanding 20th century, 20, now of course 21st century pieces was really um kind of up my alley, just kind of um, philosophically, I guess, and, and always trying to be faster, always trying to be 
um, more, more beautiful, more edgy, more everything. Wow. <laughs> Agusti Fernandez always uh, teases me all the time when, when I would ended up in Spain uh, after doing my graduate work um, and lived in Spain, I, I started performing with a lot of improvisers and I was a part of an improvisation collective there. And I, I have was, some of those recordings. Yeah. So with Agusti, you know, he would always say, Jane, you always want more of this and more of that. <laughs> You would want more silence. You would want more more piano. You know, it's like the extremes of everything. And um, so, yeah. it's um... Well, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, now when I look at you um, and the pieces that I've experienced of you more recently, because I've been obviously following your music for a really long time, I see this kind of, um, you know, inward explosion of something that I think is really new and unique, which is this experience of sound in the instrument like you bring the sound of the flute very close to you you exploit so many of the nuances and the subtleties and you've really changed the sound of the instrument which is why i love the eric dolphy yeah backstory because again like until we thought there were options we thought our only option was to play classical music better Mm-hmm. with a better tone, you know, more nuanced, more subtly. But with improvisation, we exploit every aspect of the instrument. And so your push for almost superhuman abilities on the instrument. Well, yeah, but I also feel like playing 20th century repertoire forced me to do that. Like that's the thing that really brought me out of my comfort zone. Because in improvisation, it's very easy to go to the places where you're used to. You know, it's very easy to go to your own little cliches or your own little places of comfort. But playing repertoire was what pushed me and forced me to expand my vocabulary. That's number one. Number two, the other thing that happened actually at UCSD was that I realized I didn't need to study with flutists only. I didn't need to only study flute with flute players. I could study... I could study music with musicians. So I, I had um, independent studies with John Silber on improvisation, who uh, was a, a wonderful trombone player and composer and improviser. I studied with Stephen Schick. Um, I studied, uh, you know, Global Car with Stephen Schick because he was such the master of choreography. And, and, and in um, Monolith by, by Global Car for flute, you have to switch. There's like this big choreographic thing you have to do where you have to like circular breathe and like, you know, pick up the bass flute while you're holding the piccolo and blow a D flat at the same time into both instruments while you're singing and then put one instrument down while you're still playing and then suddenly go back. It's like crazy, right? So he, you know, he really gave me some incredible tips on that. Also, I studied movement and dance a lot. And I, I was always working with dancers. And so, um, and in Spain, I worked even more with dancers and theater artists a lot and visual artists as well. And so all of that, um, all of that really pushed me to other places. And, and because the improvisers I was playing with were also, well, if you think of Wade Matthews and Augusti Fernandez and all these, these people who are, are, um, always living on the edge of their music and always challenging themselves. Um, we would bring in artists like John Butcher and Luke Juanin and Wolfgang Fuchs and um, Peter Kowald. I mean, we, we brought in all of these artists from different parts of Europe to, to show us, uh, Phil Durant, um, to, to show us all of these different perspectives on how we get, how we both accept our cliches and our comfort zones, but also how we, how we can push past that and question, um, and, and Katie Duck is another, uh, is a dancer who I worked with who really brought me into this whole, another, you know, crisis actually about playing and about improvisation, you know, so basically the, the question was, um, why play, you know, why am I playing at all? Um, and, and, and she, her terminology was always about movement. You know, it was always never, um, stop, go. It was always not never, but it, it wasn't necessarily stop, go, but it was, exit, enter. Why are you entering? Why are you exiting? And I think that with music too, you know, like if I'm improvising or if I'm composing or if I'm just playing, what is happening around me? It's like orchestration in real time. You know, what is happening around me that I need to not play so that that can come out? You know, what is around me that's happening that needs to be heard in my background, in my foreground? You know, what is my role? Um, so you know, improvising has become this huge 
really um, important, when I say huge, I mean important, like vital uh, element in my playing and in my composition and in the way I think. And so um, because I've played so many pieces that required me to come to a different um, a different realization of timbre and melody and what that means, what melody actually means. <laughs> and then um, it, it just, it's, it's really gotten me out of my comfort zone. And so now I can think that's that music and sound, thanks to Eric Dolphy <laughs> pushing the button, um, that now music is everything. Music is all of the timbres that you're capable of. So you're not necessarily limited to the beautiful flute tone that we're, we think that is supposed to be. <laughs> right. The only flute tone that is supposed right. to be. No, I mean, you've already answered one of the questions that I had prepared, which was, you know, as improvisers, yeah, we have to continuously challenge ourselves to get out of that comfort zone. And the way each one of us as individuals challenges ourselves, you know, we, we understand sort of as a culture or as a broader culture, what it means to be a pianist, say, or a flutist, which is, you know, practicing tone, musicality, you know, learning repertoire, all of those sorts of things. But once you step away from the repertoire, you're so right, the comfort zone can so quickly become where we just hang out. And I've, I've really enjoyed discovering how every one of those musicians that you mentioned, and so many others, keep themselves moving forward. And yeah, it's a lot of existential crises. It's a lot of having the right person ask the right question at the right time. Yeah. And just suddenly it resonates with you and nothing that you've done before makes sense in this new, like wide open landscape. Now, when I just saw your live performance at UCSD, which was glorious, by the way, it was so enjoyable. Obviously, this, the time that you've spent working on movement and dare we say it, performative aspects of your work. Um, well, I hope we don't dare to say it. I hope we say it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, really important. we're going there. We're going yeah. there. The theatricality, the, the way in which you perform and even approach work is so singular. I, I want to hear about your time in Japan. I want to hear about the piece Convexed Origins and how that related to both your musical lineage as well as other lineages. Um, talk a little bit about those recent developments and the role of the ancestors and yeah. <laughs> this is great. Well, um, I don't even know where to begin. I, I've been fascinated with Japan and Japanese culture for many, many years, partly because of having listened to so much recorded shakuhachi music um, and then knowing people who play shakuhachi like Philip Gelb, uh, Phil Gelb, uh, who's in San Francisco, and playing with him. And I wrote a grant. I wrote a grant called the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission, uh, which is a – at the time it was a five-month, all-expenses-paid uh, residency or, or, or fellowship to live in Japan on your own, doing whatever you want to do completely free of any institution, basically, um, to do whatever you want to do for five months. And I wrote the grant and I, and I, uh, really <laughs> was thinking, well, I'll write this. It'll be the first time I was very, um, particular about it. I contacted people in Japan. I didn't even know. I just said, Hey, I'm this person. I, I got your name from so-and-so. I, I just did whatever I could to, to organize a trip there before I actually got there. And I wrote this, this, this proposal that had it all charted out. Well, if I got this grant, this is what I would do, where I would be, and when. And, if I, and then the next month, I would do this, and then I would do this, and I would do this. And then the next month, I would do this. And the, and the reason and the goal for all of this is because blah, blah, blah. And of course, movement was in there. I, I, like I said, I've been working with, with dancers. I worked a lot with dancers in, in Spain. I even bought really bad flutes, like, you know, the kind you get at the pawn shop for a hundred bucks, like that don't even play really because I, I was practicing moving on the floor and rolling around with flutes. I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. The idea of movement has been very, I've never performed publicly that way, but I've been privately very, very interested in movement for a really long time. 
So, uh, and, and actually, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a dancer, and I, I took da- tap dance, and they said, oh, you have, you know, fallen arches, you're not, you can't ever be a dancer, blah, blah, blah. So I just believed in them, which was stupid. But anyway, oh. I, I always wanted to be a dancer. And so movement has been this, like, unrequited love <laughs> of mine. So um, anyway, I wrote this grant. I actually got it, so I was able to go to Japan, and I was there for six months, and while I was there, I... I met one of two female professional no theater actors, and she let me study with her. Wow! <laughs> yeah, wow. Zawa, and it was extraordinary. I, I had to go uh, with with a translator, a good a friend of mine who was actually another flutist uh, who I knew from when I was a kid. Uh, who now lives in Japan and plays jazz shakuhachi. Awesome. Anyway, yeah. Awesome. He's Hubner. He's fantastic. Anyway, so he came as my translator. And we sat there and she she showed me the no mask and she showed she talked a little bit about no. And when she said these words to me, which I'm about to tell you, I almost I mean I had to keep from crying. I felt like I had reached the origin of of everything, of art, of like performance. She said in no, you you work with your um, your central point. Your is it tandien? It has different names. the The point in your in your below your umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. Your lower in, dantian. Yeah, your lower dantian, inside, deep, deep inside. And she said, "There's the source of everything. The source of your ancestry." the source of your past and your present and your future. And your ancestors are, you're like, you're related to them through these invisible threads Mm. that connect you to all of them, Mm. your past, your present, and your future. And they're tugging at you and they're pulling you and they're, 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 they're pushing you and, and and you on the outside are serene, Mm. but on the inside, there is a hurricane, there's a tornado, there's a torment of you fighting and pushing and pulling and choosing and making constantly making these decisions of where and when and how to proceed, right? And they're all around you. They're, they're tugging from your back, from all your sides. And I thought, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so I, so I, I worked with her and I, and, and I didn't want to work with the flute. I wanted to work with the body. And so, and the chanting. So I only worked with her with a fan and which is this transformable object. So the fan is the transformable object. It is a fan, but it is also chopsticks. It's an oar. It's an umbrella. It's a mirror. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's all of these things. And so for me, my flute is the transformable object. Oh, beautiful. Right. So uh, the other thing that I studied while I was there was Aikido. And I really think that is one of the most beautiful martial arts. I mean, of course, I don't know any of the others, but it's so amazing because there's this sense of a spiral that happens. And the spiral isn't you. The spiral is all around us. There's all of these spirals just whirling about all around us. And they're just little spirals of energy. And in Aikido, what happens is, as I felt at some points, when I wasn't trying, and of course, then I tried after I felt it, which never worked, um, that there's this spiral that you just, of energy that you just tap into. Um, and, and I've always, always, I wanted to tap into that in some way. So in convex origins, convex meaning the word coming from a vessel, right? The convex shape of a vessel that holds memory, um, life, that's empty, mm-hmm. but yet, but the, but but the, the shape the, concentrates shape. everything around it. Yeah. And the earth is convex, you know, it's round. And then the origins, this is kind of like this connection between things. So the connection between me and Japan or me and Spain, cause I lived in Spain for, you know, nine years and, you know, me and the world and the people that I've met and thousands of people and all the things that I've done, you know, all the, all the influences and the inspirations that I've, I've been granted by, by meeting so many beautiful people. So, so for me, it's a, it's a way to uh, connect to 
my roots. And also I'm adopted and I don't know my biological parents. So there's this uh, sense of emptiness. And yet somehow through these invisible threads that are very, um, they're written right in your hand. I mean, they're there everywhere. Your DNA. I mean, you can't deny Absolutely. connections that you have, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, so that's what this piece is, is about. I, I walk in and you, and I walk and I walk on the stage very, very slowly just playing long tones, but then there's this, these loops that I make and I don't play when I'm going through the loops. I look back and the gestures that my body gestures come are inspired by Japanese, uh, wood, wood block prints of women. So there's one where, um, there's a woman holding an umbrella and lifting up her kimono and looking over her opposite shoulder. Uh, there's another one. Uh, I don't even know all of them. There's one where a woman is, is looking at a mirror and putting on lipstick. And then there's one where they're serving tea or there's just a, a variety of different ones that I found uh, that um, I made my body's my body to conform to these gestures that are kind of almost like everyday gestures that we make. Yeah, very quotidian in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the walking is really... Um, Walking for me is, is another huge element in my work. The, the, the element of just walking, you know, it's like, it's like, we don't know how to breathe and we don't know how to walk. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the slow Taoist walk seems silly yeah. to everybody here in the West. Yeah. But there's something about that. Like Elaine Summers, I found out is the one who uh, talks about the articulated walk. And so my, my work, you know, is very related to movement and to, uh, like, like you said, this daily life, the, the, the mm -hmm. gestures of daily life, you know, uh, and how does that carry through the instrument? My instrument happens to be the flute. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I, I, I want to connect that. I want to connect the sounds that I'm making and the, and the gestures of my body to make those sounds.
the, the question that was immediately on my mind, um, because you, you mentioned once that you always wanted to be a dancer, but you aren't a dancer and, um, that your instrument is the flute. And I, and I want to challenge that a little bit because I know you really well, and I've just seen a recent performance and I want to say you are a dancer and you are a flutist but you're also something else like the flute is your instrument but you've created a new one between your body your voice and the instrument hmm. so i don't know if i hold to this i'm not a dancer i'm not <laughs> my instrument yeah. is the flute i hmm. i beg to disagree i think yeah. your instrument is something new well, I don't think it's new. I think that many cultures incorporate body, voice, sounds of the environment, uh, instruments, and other objects as they're absolutely corrected. You're you know what right. I mean? Like, I don't think that it's new, um, but I do. I do think that it's unusual for a classical flutist <laughs> to to incorporate all of those things into her work or his work. Um, I don't think it's, I think now is the time that more people are starting to recognize that. So in the nineties, when I was like secretly, <laughs> you know, at UCSD really wishing that there was movement in, in sonar. I mean, I re really wishing we had things I didn't take, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, risk, uh, courageous enough to make, make it at that time. I was still locked in to, I'm a flutist. I should be flutist. And so all my energy was just like pushed into the flute. Right. Well, you, <laughs> you came know? by it honestly. I mean, that was really the model we grew up with Yeah. in the West. Yeah. So all yeah. of my comments are definitely sort yeah. of prefaced with here in the yes. West, this is unusual yeah. and you do kind of have to make space for it. And it's weird yeah. who gives us permission. You know, I have a similar backstory for years with Eric Dolphy. The first time I heard Ornette Coleman, I was like, holy crap, I'm not completely insane. Right. There's somebody else in the world who hears the crazy stuff in their head that I do. Yeah. So yeah, how yeah. we get permission to do that yeah. is weird in the West. So I'm just trying it to acknowledge is. that it's bit. Strange places. Yeah, I know. I know. And I appreciate you not acknowledging that. You know, I'm, I really... I think that it's true that, that, I mean, it's taking me all my life to finally become courageous enough to say, okay, now I'm accepted as, as the flute player. <laughs> now I can, now maybe I can take the risk and do these other things. Cause people know I can actually play the flute because there's always this like, yeah, but can they really play the, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. They want to play contemporary music because they can't do other things. You know I mean? That's what I grew up with. That was the attitude when I was at like the LA Phil Institute, you know, and I said, well, I really want to compose and improvise. And they all kind of looked at me like, you know what? So I, I feel that, you know, there's, I don't need to justify my musicality or my musicianship anymore or my ability to play the flute. You know, I don't care anymore. Although if you're where the bar gets set, the rest of us are in serious trouble because like, seriously, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the challenges that face us when we're trying to do creative music just seem ridiculous to me now. And yet at the time, open ridicule of even just contemporary music, anything written was, after 1905 was, was yeah. within our lifetime. So it's oh, hard yeah. to... I know. That's crazy. I acknowledge but, the courage we've had. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It has taken a lot of us to be courageous, you know, and to move forward in new places. And and we've there are many, many musicians who've come before us who've paved the way, who've allowed us to be in the place that we're in. So and that's my job to keep pushing the boundaries so that people, you know, who are after me and and other flutists uh, and other musicians like us are are able to do even more than we were ever able to do. So you know, yeah. Where do you see yourself going then? I mean, do you have a vision or a plan with your music? Do you, or are you interpreting this journey as you go along? I'm kind of interpreting as I go along. I don't have a vision vision. I have, I have plans. I mean, I have compositional projects and ideas and, um, pieces that I want to compose that are in my head that I haven't done. 
uh, I've been, you know, like a string quartet. I've been wanting to do that for years and I haven't done it. Um, so I, I just, there are things that I, I have plans for that I haven't done uh, that I want to do, but I don't have a vision for my, my artistic work. You know, I want it to look like this, you know, in five years time or something or 10 years time. I don't have that kind of vision, but I, I do, there are challenges that I want to give myself and I don't know what they look like. I don't know you know, I'm, I'm going to be composing a piece for, um, flute and percussion. And I still have, I still, I'm not sure. I have to have that done pretty much by November. And I'm still like, I'm not really sure I could go in that direction. I could go in that direction. I can go in that direction. And there's still a lot that I'm not sure about, but I'm also really interested in, um, text scores. So that's something that I'm, I've been, Oh yeah. Um, the, you know, the, piece at your most recent concert included a yeah. score and audience yeah. participation too. Yes. Yeah. I'm very interested in that. Very, very, very interested in that. And I'm very interested in getting people moving. So that, that comes from, um, also, so I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm, I'm a certificate holder for the deep listening. That was exactly where I wanted to go next. Oh, good. <laughs> and yeah. And so part of the, so all last year for a whole year, uh, I was part of a group and of, of other deep listening practitioners. And we met through Google Hangouts. We met online twice a month and sometimes many more than twice a month. Oh, I'm sure. And, and we had three, there are three aspects to getting a deep listening certifi- certification. And the three are um, creating sonic meditations or creating text pieces that anyone can, of any ability can participate in, to uh, a movement practice right, right mm-hmm. up my alley. Mm-hmm. And the third uh, element is dreaming. And, and it's a dreaming practice. And it's literally taking note of your dreams, acknowledging your dreams, talking about your dreams with a community of other people who are willing to listen. It's not about analyzing. There's no psychoanalysis. It's just merely what happened. And speaking about your dreams maybe uh, in the present, um, uh, acknowledging feelings of your dreams. And so those three things in conjunction, working every day on these things, not, it wasn't like, I mean, you had to work on it every day, 365 days of the year. I mean, you had to literally work on, on all three of these practices and commit to the discipline, really commit to the discipline. And it was life changing for me because it was suddenly acknowledging a lot of the work that I either wasn't acknowledging or wanted to acknowledge or uh, started to, but hadn't dived into. So it was, it was very wonderful experience for me to be in this community of people who were doing the same thing I was and their way in their own ways. So you get all of these insights, right? Um, so I had to create a lot of sonic meditations last year and I didn't have to, I was super inspired. I would literally wake up in the morning and start writing a sonic meditation. Um, so I, I, and then I had another part of the, the deal of, of getting a certificate certification is that you need to provide a free deep listening workshop or session for, for people, for people, either in your family or in your, in your community or at your school or your students or something. You You're have to sharing your practice. You have to share your practice and you have to become kind of a leader. You have to be like the workshop leader or, or facilitator. Let's put it that way. I like that word better facilitator. So I was doing that, you know, and I, I, so I, and I want, I would take Pauline's sonic meditations and then I would make, you know, I would riff off those, you know, and kind of create my own off of those. And so this, this is another practice. And, and also audience participation has been something I've been interested in since actually UC, UCSD. So I would always do concerts in, in Japan as well, where I would invite people. It would be the funniest thing. People would say, no one's going to participate. I can't believe you're, you're asking Japanese to, to participate. I mean, the Japanese people would tell me this. They're like, oh, you know, just be prepared that no one, everyone's very shy here. People won't really participate. Are you kidding me? I was going to say. It was like, no, you give permission and everyone is going to participate. I mean, it was the most delightful, beautiful experience to do these concerts with people. So, so anyway, I, I'm interested in poetry and interested in, in language in this way and interested in made up languages. I like to make up my own little flute languages. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but anyway, I like to make up little, little languages. I've done this when I was doing concerts for children in Spain. At one point I was a extraterrestrial and I had my own little language. 
Zindba, right? So I have like this little thing. That sounds amazing on that little <laughs> microphone in my headphones, by the way. <laughs> so I do that in combination with the flute and you have this whole other otherworldly language, right? So I'm interested in language. I'm interested in, in, in playfulness and games. And, and so that idea was, is also I, what I like to write about and, and use, incorporate in my pieces. What you heard um, at the concert I did uh, in, the, in the Conrad Prebius Hall was uh, something that was related, um, related to my practice with the certification. So I would have these dreams. <laughs> And, um, I, I, anyway, they, I don't want to go into the whole thing, but I started to have this sense that just a little bit more of a connection to my biological ancestry. And so this piece that I wrote, uh, in for UCCS, for the people at UCCS, it was really specifically for that. Although I want to try in other places is, literally just saying the name, just pronouncing the names of your ancestors, of a, a, an ancestor, of one person. And I'm really interested in places and I'm also interested in numbers. So I had the directions were basically write down the name of an ancestor. If you can't think of a name, make one up, right? Um, uh, write down the name of a place that is associated, like a city or a country of this particular ancestor. Again, if you can't, if you don't know, make one up, right? Um, and then a date, like a year. Write down the year that is associated with this ancestor. It could be the date of their birth, the date of their death, an approximation. Maybe if it's a place, maybe when they lived in that place, if you don't you know, anything like that. So this, those three things. And then pronounce, and, uh, pronounce these names out loud. And as you, and then pass your card or this piece of paper that's got all of this together or an app. I was trying to actually make an app. I didn't, I didn't get it done in time. Um, and pronounce these names out loud and then pass that to another person and receive their ancestors and then say that out loud and then pass that around. So the whole audience and everyone is passing around names and pronouncing out loud with reverence. That's also part of the instructions say these names in the space and listen and, and with reverence. Um, yeah, that and- is actually one of the most interesting aspects of that piece for me. Mm-hmm. Because in certainly at Conrad Prebys and UCSD, like I don't, in, in traditional sweat lodge um, ritual, one of the first things we do is we introduce ourselves to the stones. Um, and we introduce ourselves by naming our ancestors as many as we can, as far back as we can. And so the idea is that we are connected backwards in time to the ancestors and we're invoking them as we begin our journey. And that was, of course, the first piece that you did. I felt like it was um, very much, and you had a choir of people doing it. Yeah. So when I think about a vocal choir, I immediately think about, a certain context of reverence and ritual mm-hmm. and then to be invoking these ancestors names. I, it mm. was interesting. It was a wonderful contrast because it's not something that I'm used to happening in a concert hall. Right. And I was not expecting the whole audience to get up and stand up and start interacting with each other. I thought people would be too shy and they would, you know, just sit in their places while the, while the choir would be in the audience kind of being the ones to pass in hand and, and be the linkage between the audience members. But no, the whole audience got up, oh, yeah. stood up, <laughs> moved around, started, you know, really interacting with each other. And I practically was in tears. I mean, I was just like, this is going way better than I imagined. It was beautiful. I loved it. it. Was so beautiful. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, it was really, it was actually David Chase's idea. That's Claire Chase's dad. Who's, who's the father. And he, he's the director of the, I think the La Jolla, the whole, the La Jolla, is it the La Jolla University Choir? The La Jolla, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, um, semi-professional choir and, uh, he's fantastic. And when we were rehearsing, he said, why don't we first pass it to each other? So then the audience sees us doing it. And then we, we go into the audience. And I thought that was such a brilliant idea. I wish I could take credit for that. (laughs) 
but I can't. Um, big shout out. <laughs> yeah, big shout out. That was really, it was so wonderful to work with him and all of the vocalists um, who were so committed to to playing my piece. Um, so yeah, it, it really, um, it was really a wonderful experience. That was the first time. So there were a lot of firsts in that concert. I'd never done my own sonic. I've never done a sonic meditation of my own in that way. And I had never done a movement piece I'd never done a piece like Convex Origins in public that way. So I never would have known watching from the outside in. No, but I mean, it's kind of interesting how, yeah, I felt when I was watching that concert, a lot of things coming full circle. I mean, seeing John Fonville in the audience, we Um, were on a new stage for me because that stage, you know, Conrad Previs didn't exist when I was at UCSD or you were at UCSD. So it was new, but it was also old because it was kind of our a big part of both of our origin stories and then god you i just remember something my first improvisation in public solo improvisation i was studying with john silver and you know what i did when i walked out on stage (laughs) and i did not plan it i walked in a circle I asked the lighting person to make one spotlight, really hard spotlight, and have it directly facing down onto the onto the stage so that all there was was just a circle of light on the stage. I remember that piece. And I walked on stage and I noticed my shoes as I was walking on stage to play. I did like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to play. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh my God, I'm nervous. What am I going to do? And I heard my shoes shuffling on the floor. And I, th- I thought, that makes a nice sound. And I used that as my improvisation and I walked in a circle. And why I'm, why I'm freaking out is because you said that there was this full circle, like this, this sort of come in a full circle. And this piece, Convex Origins, I, I walk in a loop, in a couple of loops. And I also do that spiral turn mm-hmm. very, very, very slowly with my arms up um, in, in one spot as well. So <laughs> You're stepping into the hurricane. Yeah. I don't even know what that was. I just start doing I, – I mean, I know what it was because I choreographed it, but I, I didn't – I uh, I don't know how where it comes from, but yeah, I guess I am stepping into the to the hurricane. Mm-hmm. The spiral yeah. already exists. You just figured out a way to step into it. Yeah, and it was the sound of your <laughs> shoes, which is really cool. It's really neat. Yeah, I was like, wow. Of course, I'm barefoot in Convex Origins, but and also I must put a shout out to the person who helped me make the choreography and helped me refine it. Really, um, a woman who is the director of the theater and dance program at Colorado college here in Colorado Springs. Her name is Sean Womack. And, um, she really was the one who, who solidified and refined all of my movements and, and, uh, how I get from one place to the next and every, every little aspect of it. She really helped me, um, refine. So I could not have done that without her. It's amazing how improvisation and contemporary, um, performance pieces are so often considered, um, well, improvisation, you know, everything is spontaneous. They have no idea how many hours and hours and hours and hours of work goes wow. into oh my God. Like hundreds yeah. of years. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like most of the time millennia goes into creating the appearance of spontaneity and actually sometimes to actually get to spontaneity after all of our layers Absolutely. of education and training Absolutely. and yeah, yeah those we have to constantly be pulled toward and against freedom I guess yeah and what's interesting is like pieces like you know music for Sarah and a lot of other pieces like this and convex origins they're 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 composed but there's there's elements within the structure of freedom, you know, within a guideline, a set guideline. So there's improvisation built in or there's flexibility built into it. And then there's a kind of an ambiguity between what is improvisation and what is structured, you know? Yeah. I Um, like that. I like the ambiguity between mm -hmm. what is improvised and what is structured because Mm -hmm. that's that the crux of the technique Mm-hmm. if you will, the the place where our technique really carries us forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate this conversation today. I think you, I mean, so many of the things that interest me in contemporary music um, 
And yeah, you're right. A lot of it is old hat outside of the West. But, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it still seems like a struggle to find my freedom against the backdrop of mm-hmm. sort of classical music expectations. Is that it? I'm not sure. Because I, too, come out of classical music. So there's there's a lot of expectation there that I've had to throw off, mm-hmm. if you will. But mm-hmm. I think when I ultimately when I think about your work, I think about this synthesis of gesture and form kind of a unity of from sound to motion to memory Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah all of it seems to come together in this and maybe I see it as a hurricane that somehow exists the dynamic tension between your voice your body and your instrument all of which seem to have melded together long ago and become one thing yeah so it's really interesting to like yeah i mean it's really interesting to catch up on how you've been motivated and how you developed all of this because it's Mm -hmm. it's spectacular to behold so oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much oh no absolutely and at the all of it is collaboration right and how we collaborate with others and how we how we learn from each other. So I think that, I think if, if I have one last thing to say, and, and you asked me before where my, where my work might be going, I would say there would, it's going to go towards more collaborative work and more collaborations. Um, I, I'm glad we're ending on that word because yeah. it's so important and I can't yeah. believe it hasn't come up yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the whole other conversation. <laughs> it's implied. We, you know, for both of us, collaboration is seriously implied. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate giving the time and the and the space for voicing um, my little story. Oh my God, it's beautiful. <laughs> thank you. And another really big thank you to composer-performer Jane Riggler for that interview. If you want to know more about her work and her recordings, go check out her website and blog over at www.janeriggler.com. That's www.j-a-n-e-r-i-g-l-e-r.com. And check out our show notes for information on the upcoming deep listening event at MPAC, the opera premiere by composer Kristen Nordeval at www.bansheemedia.com. We are going to try to link to every composer, performer, and ensemble that Jane mentioned in that interview, from John Fonville and Sonar at UCSD to Wade Matthews and the folks in Europe, as well as the artists in Japan and other colleagues. So check out our show notes. We'll try and get those up just as quickly as we can. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.